Hello and welcome to episode 134 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. Joining me as always is the glorious League Freak, who you can find on Twitter at League Freak. How you going there, mate? I'm going very well. I'm really uh, excited about this episode. I love the history episodes. I love learning about the game of Rugby League, uh, where it's come from, because I think you've got to know where you've been to know where you've gone. Beautifully put, mate. Beautifully put. Mm. Have you been reading poetry or something? I've been watching Q&A. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you were going to go there. No, no. I shouldn't have either. just made me angry. Actually, I've got to say, if you've been watching q and I've got to ask, are you okay, mate? Yeah, yeah, I will be. I managed to not watch it long enough to get too angry. Oh, good, good, good. good. I thought there might have been something dire that had gone on in your life to make you go there. No, no, I just, uh, I fell into it by accident. Oh, that's all right then. Um, yes, today's episode, it's going to be a history one, and it's got a heavy involvement with how the game began in Australia. And it also looks at the demise of the first rugby league club that we had in Australia, which was the Glebe Club. Now, so, now yeah. hang on a second, because I'm certain that Newtown says that they're the first club, the first rugby league club in Australia. You're absolutely that, right. Newtown okay. does say that. Mm-hmm. But... Mm-hmm. Um, and I can only go off newspaper archives, as have a lot of other historians who have looked into this. Mm-hmm. And the Glebe um, meeting took place on January 9, and the Newtown one was after that. Okay. And Newtown, Newtown's argument is they believe they've got a minutes book which has the the first meeting was the day before the Glebe one. Okay. But no one's seen it. Oh, really? Mm. <laughs> So they're saying they physically have it, but no one has seen it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tell you what. Here's here's a challenge to anybody at Newtown Rugby League Club. We have a rugby league historian here who is willing to go on the line. If you produce this document, this book, we will physically look at it, and if you can prove you were first, then we can change all history. But until such time as you do that. It's Glebe. It's Glebe. Yep. That's right. And we can only go by the facts because back then journalists were actually a lot more accurate about what they did. Ah, and, okay. and they quoted facts and stuff. That must have been nice. Yeah, yeah. It'd be great if James Hood ornament went and had a look at some of this stuff and go, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> Didn't think I'd be mentioning him in an episode about Glebe, but there you go. All right. All right, so... We're going to be going a fair way back to before the birth of Rugby League as well. So just to cover a few people. Um, so as always, mate, um, chip in and interrupt whenever the hell you feel like it. Yeah, I will do. <laughs> uh, okay, so on January 9, 1908, a meeting at the Glebe Town Hall containing the Metropolitan Rugby Union's best side Glebe, their officials and board members, politician Henry Hoyle, who is also the president for the New South Wales Rugby League, and businessman James Giltman, the secretary, led to the iconic club deciding to switch codes and join the Breakaway Rugby League for the upcoming season. Uh, the decision to switch codes was a catalyst for teams like Balmain, South Sydney, Eastern Suburbs, Newtown, North Sydney and Western Suburbs to also abandon the Metropolitan Rugby Union, which I'll refer to as the MRU here on in, and to join the Rugby League. It was just as integral to Rugby League's birth as the procurement of star player Daly Messenger. Everyone knows about Daly Messenger and how important he was to the birth of the game because he was that big star power. But as we'll find out, Glebe brought a huge amount of assets um, as well as success to Rugby League, which was just as vital to the game getting off the ground. Um, in 1899, Glebe board member Lewis Abrams was made president of the Metropolitan Rugby Union. And in its de- which was for its debut season of 1900, it went through this huge reformation to try and shake things up and get a bit more excitement into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also the alderman for the Glebe Council from 1893 till 1898. Um, he'd been the secretary of the Glebe Cricket Club from 1892 to 1900, president of the Glebe Bicycle Club and secretary of the Glebe Free Trade and Liberal Association. 
He's a busy man. Jeez, yeah. What do you have time to do anything? <laughs> well, one thing that he did come up with was um, he was usually responsible for the introduction of what was called electoral cricket, which is essentially what became known as the residential rule that was used in both cricket, rugby union, and rugby league when it first came in as well. Oh, wow. That's interesting. That's right. So, and that was all about. Um, so, the residential rule I've mentioned before. It's where you play for the play for the team that represents the suburb in which you reside. Yeah, so I mean, electoral. I guess that's up the electoral boundaries at the time. I believe that's what it was. Yeah. Mm. Um, he was also hugely involved in the re, in the creation of the MRU in nineteen hundred. So he was pr- quite a pivotal figure. Mm. Um. So when when the MRU formed in 1900, they announced all the teams that were going to be playing in a comp that year, um, and they'd all have three grades of competition. Glee was one of the first teams entered into that comp as it was seen as, and I quote, a stronghold of sport. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, Glee's side in the new MRU saw them change their jersey colour. They used, they used to be blue, black and yellow. But when 1900 came around, they changed their colours to maroon, which was later referred to as dirty red. Now, is there a reason they changed their colours? Was it so they didn't clash with another team? Not too sure. It seems like it might have been just to have... um, No no other team really had just one solid colour. So I think it might have been just to stand out as as a different entity of their own, I think. Okay. Um. Abrams was elected as the Glebe Club Secretary. The club patron was none other than the Sydney Mayor himself, Sir Matthew Harris. Now, Sir Matthew Harris was a very valuable man to have on board. He wasn't just the Mayor of Sydney, but also President of the Wentworth Park Trust, uh, a ground which had never had a game of football played on it, but would become Glebe's home ground for the 1900 season. Harris was also Vice President of the Royal Agricultural Society, whose ground was considered a marquee venue at the time as well. Wow, he was very powerful then, especially in sport. Yes. Um, so you're starting to see, I suppose, why I've gone back this far, because you're starting to see how important these people were um, yeah. to rugby union and how valuable they became when they come across to rugby league. Yeah, definitely. Wow. So Glebe were quite a dominant side. Um, in 1900, they were the premiers. In 1901, Glebe and Sydney University would accord declared joint premiers after they agreed not to play a final due to an international tour to New Zealand, which is a bit weird. Mm-hmm. Um, 1903, Glebe runners up to East. 1905, they were runners up to South. And in 1906, they beat... Uh, sorry, 1906, they were declared premiers, first past the post. In 1907, they beat Sydney University 13-10 in the final to be premiers. Wow, so they're like a proper top side. Yeah, they were the marker unit. There's no doubt about it. Um, now, before we fall on from 1907, mm-hmm. there's another important person here, and he was a player. Mm-hmm. And this player is Alec Burden, or Alex Burden. Mm-hmm. And folklore has it, and thankfully it's been corrected over time, but folklore has it that um, an injury that he sustained was the catalyst for rugby league's birth. Mm-hmm. That's not actually the case, but... He, I mean, he did get injured. It was a part of the process, but um, there were a lot of things going on that led to the birth of rugby league. It wasn't just he's injured, he couldn't get paid. Oh, let's have rugby league. Didn't kind of work that way. <laughs> it's funny because a lot of the, a lot of sports have those stories about oh, there was this one moment, and none of them are really properly true. No, I mean, as we found out, we spoke with Tony Collins about um, William Webb Ellis. Mm. Um, yeah, that story is even, not even true. No. So I think it's, it's kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's sort of a romantic thing, I guess, for the game to have. It's a nice backdrop that, you know, it was because, you know, it was formed because of all the right reasons to help players out, but there was so many other little things going on that led to it. Yeah. And one of them, and we got to acknowledge it. One of them was that the players saw all this money that was going through the turnstiles and we're like, man, I'd love some of that. Yeah. 
And there's even a, a story, which I might even get to in another episode, where um, a bunch of players were on a train going up to, to Brisbane for a test match, mm. I believe, and they were all sitting in cattle class, mm-hmm. and up in first class were all of the rugby union officials, and they're sitting there having caviar and smoking cigars and drinking alcohol and stuff like that, and all the players are back there, and they get none of it. Yeah, I've heard that one too. That's, uh, it's funny that that one has has come through through time and stuff because they must have really been angry and let everyone know it at the time to, for it to to get through to the history of the game. Yeah, exactly. So uh, back to Alex Burden. On July 23, 1904, Australia played Great Britain and tested Brisbane at the exhibition ground. Um, Burden was playing in his third consecutive test for the Wallabies, and he'd scored the opening try to give the Wallabies a 3-0 lead at halftime. But during the second half, he copped a heavy knock to his shoulder, which forced him from the field. In typical Burden style, he returned to the field 17 minutes later, but it was, he wasn't able to do anything. Great Britain went on to win the game 17-3. to um, For Burden, though, it was the start of an extended layoff from playing and from work. He returned the following season. His injury, though... Like in sports today, it was just an unfortunate risk every player took when they ran onto the field. However, with rugby union being strictly amateur, players could not be paid to play, nor were they financially supported if their rugby union injury prevented them from working. And he was a barber. Oh, wow. So it actually prevented him from doing any work whatsoever. Then, obviously, Glebe had a lot of um, work on docks and stuff around there as well. Mm-hmm. Um and he couldn't do any manual labour either. Mm. Two years later, almost to the day, July 14, 1906, Gleig hosted Auckland City at the SCG. In a close-fought match, Gleig trailed 11-8 with 10 minutes remaining when Gleig's George Riddle and Auckland's George Little <laughs> collided heavily when they both attempted to kick a loose ball. The collision saw both players suffer horrific broken legs each. Oh, man. The sight of the injuries was so severe that the referee and the players agreed to call the game off early and the players, uh, the 200 players, were sent to St. Vincent's Hospital. Coincidentally, the same two players collided with each other in a game just 12 months prior, which resulted in both of them suffering broken collarbones. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's some articles which suggested that some people in the crowd could hear the bones crack. Man. Yeah, it was savage. Yeah. Um, the Glebe Club decided to hold a benefit concert to raise funds for both players, and Glebe officials asked the rugby union to support their campaign. However, the request was declined because they couldn't support, and you know, the rugby union would not support any activity that gave players money for their involvement in the game. Glebe, though, decided, bugger that. They went ahead with fundraising and managed to raise £45 for each player, which is close to three months' wages each. Uh, former Glee Rugby Union board member Joe McGraw publicly criticised the Rugby Union for their not helping Burden in 1904 or Riddell in 1906. The Rugby Union shortly after agreed to provide extra financial assistance to Riddell and Little. So they had a little bit of pressure put on them and they, they yielded. Now that's interesting that they did provide financial assistance because... Obvious, I mean, saying no, they won't get involved in fundraising for players that... And, and you've got to keep in mind, back then, if if you've got a broken leg, it, which is going to take a long time to heal, if it heals properly, you literally can't do anything. And it's a very different time from now. Um, for, for them to say no, they weren't going to get involved, that would have really put everyone's nose out of joint. They had anything to do with these players. And but then then for the rugby union to turn around and give them some financial assistance, that must have raised questions with all of the players that were playing rugby union at the time. That if they've got this money that they can give to players in these circumstances, why don't they do that more often? Why are they keeping it to themselves unless it's an extreme case like this? I mean, it's. It's funny because both ways it almost works against rugby union. Yeah, and the, th- the other thing is it shows you how close they got 
to giving the players what they wanted, which could have actually prevented rugby league from being born. Yeah, and like if you look at this moment in time for rugby union in Sydney, if they that and then you look at what happens just a couple of years down the track where they are from this point, what a disaster for them. If they had have just said, look, if you get injured, we'll cover it. Rugby league doesn't start. It, it does not that it wouldn't start, but it would have been one very, very big reason for it to not have the catalyst to start. Exactly. Um, and this wasn't the only case where a player did actually get some sort of financial assistance from the rugby union. They were very erratic with who they gave financial assistance to and who they didn't. Mm-hmm. And Glebe often were a side where um, they wouldn't get any financial assistance, but some players, including um, players from touring teams, mm-hmm. would get looked after more than the local players. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an episode which we'll get into one day about Pat Walsh, um, which is another huge story, which is big in helping form rugby league, um, mm-hmm. which which shows that aspect really strongly as well. Um, so as we're talking there, like we saw how close rugby union were to giving the players what they wanted. And in 1907, they went so harshly in the opposite direction. It gave... It gave rugby league, I suppose, a ground to work from, to to build from, to form the game, mm-hmm. because the MRU decided to abolish its insurance cover for players, which meant clubs then had to pick up that tab, not the what? game itself. Yeah. Um, so if the club didn't have the money, the players weren't insured. Wow, that's really interesting, and. You know, if the the clubs have to pick it up themselves, just from a business standpoint, why not just go the the whole extra way and just become a, a professional code? Exactly. You know, if they're having to pay for insurance, it's not a big leap for these clubs to then just pay the players. That's right, yeah. Um, it shows... I suppose how steadfast they were in amateurism must be, must not be tainted. Yeah, yeah. Um, on May 4, uh, Sydney played South Sydney in a match at the SCG. And it was towards the end of this game when Burden infamously broke his arm. With no insurance to cover him while he was injured and unable to work, his feeling of anger towards rugby union for twice failing to help him reach its peak. He began attending meetings at uh, Victor Trumper's sports store. And if you don't know, Victor Trumper was Australia's elite test cricketer at the time. Um, the meetings were frequently attended by James Gilton, Trumper himself, Henry Hoyle, and some players who were regular attendees included Trumper's friend Peter Moyer from Glebe, Arthur Hennessy from South, Bob Graves from Balmain, and Jim Moyer also from, from Glebe. Two weeks after Burns' injury, Peter Moyer received a telegram from George Smith in New Zealand who was asking if a team of players in Sydney could be assembled to play against a professional rugby team from New Zealand who would be visiting Australia en route to England where they would be partaking in a tour against professional Northern Union clubs. And keep in mind, New Zealand went professional before Australia did. That's right, yes. Professional the year before, so... Yes, thanks uh, almost entirely to Albert Baskerville. Mm, Yeah. Another huge figure. Um, Moya took the telegram to Trumper's shop and after a brief meeting was held the request by Smith was accepted professional rugby started to become a reality and a great attraction for many disgruntled players Glebe Rugby Union board members who were delegates that sat on the MRU committee actually supported the rugby league movement and made it clear that they felt that a player revolt towards professionalism was the fault of the rugby union for treating the players with such contempt and insincerity on August 17, 1907, New Zealand played against New South Wales in a game under rugby union rules, but where all players were paid in what is considered the first game of rugby league in Australia. 20,000 people turned out to watch the match, which was won by the visitors 12-8. Two more games were played over the next six days, with New Zealand winning both. Glebe fullback Charlie Headley and forward Peter Moyer represented New South Wales in all three games. 
once they got those that those games played and with the injured players you know that and the money that was made out of those games and those players would have got paid some of that money it must have been a very easy sell to players from that point on because they had they had a direct thing that they could show they could say like look, look at this game you played played these games these players earn this much money it, it must have been such an easy sell at that point especially when every single one of those players would walk out of that game and go, I've made more money playing three or one game of rugby union than you guys have made in your entire career. Yep, yep, <laughs> exactly. It, it's funny how it's funny how there's this moment in time where it all sort of just came together at the right time for rugby league in Sydney. Yeah. Um. So the MRU held a meeting shortly after this series finished. Lewis Abrams proposed that the rugby union should give its players the same entitlements that the professional game planned to, as it would ensure that the players would not leave the code. The committee ruled his comments out of order and was forced to deny that his intentions were to turn rugby union professional. The committee then ruled all players who participated in those games against the visiting New Zealand All Golds, as they were referred to as, um, all those players would be disqualified for life. And so on January 9, 1908, Glebe agreed to become a rugby league club. Many of their board members supported this decision, including the most important of them all, Sir Matthew Harris. His switch of allegiance saw rugby league gain exclusive use of both Wentworth Park and the Royal Agricultural Showground. Absolutely massive. Huge. Yeah. And that's, as I said, like, um, you also got that marquee club as well the top team in rugby union so them coming across meant that glebe uh, meant rugby union just lost its marquee team and its yeah. two marquee venues yeah and i guess that's one of the the things that was the difference between rugby league in sydney and rugby league in other places is that the the opportunity for rugby union and, and rugby union aligned officials to closed a lot of doors, which they've always done to rugby league in different parts of the world and still do to this day. In Sydney, that just from day one basically didn't happen because of the venues that were... I mean, we had the use of the the, the venues basically in Sydney. Yeah. If, if ever there was a moment in time when um, an organisation did not read the room, mm-hmm. that was it. Well, you think about it. If if the Metropolitan Rugby Union at the time had have just said we will will compens- compensate the players for injuries, and we will just we will look into compensating them for their time when they play the game, rugby league doesn't it doesn't saying it doesn't start is weird because rugby union just would have become rugby league, and if it starts in Sydney it probably would have permeated through the rest of the rugby union playing world because once they saw the example that had been made in Sydney and, you know, New Zealand had pockets that were professional. All of Northern England was professional by then, but for, you know, going on over a decade. It's a really interesting moment in time for both rugby codes because if they had have said, yes, let's just go with the professional idea, we're looking at a completely different, almost sporting world. Yeah, exactly. There's no doubt about it. But they would just refuse to budge it's from very, what they thought they should be doing. It's weird that they stuck so strongly to it. Mm. They, I think they thought that the rugby league would not take off mm. and that it wasn't going to be a threat. So they treated it with pretty much no respect and no contempt whatsoever, thinking it's never going to work. It's not going to be a threat. Mm-hmm. So they played hardball, thinking that the players weren't going to do it. It's um, a big <laughs> yeah. So at Glebe's landmark meeting, uh, Tom McCabe was made a member of the management committee, and future Prime Minister Billy Hughes was appointed club patron. Uh, Alderman Percy Lucas was elected as the club's first president. 
On April 11, 1908, Glee played their first game as a rugby league club, losing a trial against West 10-9. On Easter Monday, April 20, 3.15pm, Glee kicked off their first official game against Newcastle in front of 3,000 fans at Wentworth Park. Glee won the Masters by playing quite poorly 8-5. They went on to win their first five straight games before falling to South 21-5. They won their next two before dropping their last game of the season against neighbourhood rivals Balmain. Uh, so they made it to the finals, but didn't make it to the the uh, grand final, essentially, is what it was uh, that year. On May 6, 1908, Glebe fullback Charlie Headley and forward Tom McKay were both selected to play in Australia's first test match against the visiting New Zealand side, which Australia lost 11-10. Um, two months later, both players were also played in the first ever interstate game of rugby league for New South Wales against Queensland. New South Wales romped home 43 nil with McCabe scoring two tries. At the end of the year, uh, Glebe players Alex Burden, Arthur Conlon, Arthur Halloway, Charlie Headley, Tom McCabe and Peter Moyer uh, were all selected as part of the Pioneer and Kangaroo Tour to England. Um, because they lost all of those great players, they also lost their semi-final match 16-3 to South, which prevented them from making it to the final. Now, we've spoken about the tumultuous meeting that started at the start of 1909. Um, that involved a Glebe player who was standing in for a Newcastle official, and it led to a whole meltdown and a second meeting had and all sort of stuff. Um, so Glebe had a small role there. It wasn't really much with the club there. But uh, in 1909... Because a lot of their star players were away for the first few rounds, because that that 1908-09 Kangaroo Tour was epically long. It was over 40 games. Mm-hmm. Um, and the season started while the players were still playing, and then they had several weeks on the boat coming back home. Glebe only won four out of their 10 games and finished fifth, and therefore missed the finals. Uh, 1910, Annandale, another neighbour to Glebe, came into the competition. Um, and so that made that saw Glebe struggle a little bit as well, but Glebe did pick up some epically good players from the Wallabies coup that happened in 1909, mm-hmm. which we also discussed in that 1909 episode. Yeah. Um, obviously, Wallaby Chris McKivitt was the the star of the the pickups, but also got Jack Hickey. Um, and so. In 1911, Glebe finished the season as minor premiers, but at that point, first past the post wasn't in... Well, well, it was in play, but if you were tied with with another team below you, then you had to have a playoff, and you got two points if you won the playoff. And it was a weird, weird system. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so it meant that East won a playoff with South which gave them the same number of points as Glebe. So then they had to play against Glebe, and East beat Glebe. Because Glebe were the team on top of the ladder, they had the right of a reply, which is a grand final challenge. Mm-hmm. And they lost that game to East as well. And that was the closest they got in their entire history to winning a premiership. Wow. What a terrible system, by the way. <laughs> it was It was rough. Now, 1911 was also um, was also the, the debut season of Frank Burge. He was aged just 16. He was so impressive in that debut season, he was actually considered for the 1911 Kangaroo Tour, but was not allowed to go because he was too young. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, can you imagine a 16-year-old, and, and obviously... It's good at the time that people realise, look, we can't have a 16-year-old going away for that long on a kangaroo tour. But to be that good at that age is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, Frank Burgess. And this is the thing, I mean, today you can't really rely on things like tri-scoring stats and stuff like that to say how good a player is. It works to some extent, but not all the way. But in these days, um, a forward... A 16-year-old forward mm. who had the the try-scoring stats that Frank Burge had. 
um, you can't ignore it. No, so, no. And it, I mean, it stood out as such an anomaly. And, and it does in the entire history of the game. It's basically, I, I mean, it's really him and Steve Menzies in terms of try scoring forwards. And yeah. they just stand like a colossus above every other forward in the whole history of rugby league. It's really extraordinary. Well, look at some of his stats here. Okay, so 1911, he played 15 games and scored seven tries. 1912, he played 12 games, three tries. 1913, eight games, one try. It doesn't sound that impressive to start with. Mm. But in 1914, this is when he started to really hit his straps. Uh, 10 games for 11 tries. 1915, 14 games, 22 tries. He did exactly the same in 1916. 1917, six games, nine tries. 1918, 14 games, 24 tries. 1919, eight games, five tries. 1920, 11 games, 16 tries. 1921, eight games, five tries. 1922, 14 games, 14 tries. He finished his career having played 153 club games, scored 148 tries, so almost a try game. Um, For New South Wales, against all opponents, he had 26 games for 32 tries. And for Australia, 13 tests for seven tries. Yeah, like, as I said, it it just stands out like it's some sort of statistical anomaly. Really extraordinary. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so you... And there, there was never anyone that got close to touching that record um, as a forward. Mm. Just... Just insane. Um and well-deserved of immortality too, might I say. Yeah, definitely. Now, in, in 1912, the side reached the final of the inaugural City Cup competition, which was seen as, um, I suppose it's kind of like the Challenge Cup over in England. It's seen as having quite a fair bit of, um, I suppose, prestige about it and quite a, quite a bit of value about it. Um, this city cup run for about a decade, and in some cases it was a little knockout competition where there was just the the eight teams played against one another, and it only went for like three or four weeks. And then other times, especially during the twenties, it was just it was exactly the same length as the premiership season. Oh wow! Um, so it was it was a pretty big deal, mm. but. 1912, they lost the final of the City Cup 30-5 to to South. Um, they also, but in 1912, they actually did win their first title as a club, which was the uh, reserve grade title. So they, they weren't without silverware. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> um, in August of 1912, Glee President Tom Keegan, who was a Labor member of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly, mentioned his displeasure at the admission of Tom Gleeson from the New South Wales side that travelled to New Zealand. He also was very critical of the New South Wales Rugby League for the admission of Chris McKivitt from the tour. Keegan finished with a final attack on the New South Wales Rugby League when he stated that the Glee players Fritz Thiering and Jack Redman received very severe suspensions in comparisons to uh, East player Arthur Halloway. And you can start to see a little bit of, um, I don't know, rebelliousness, uh, rebelliousness, I guess, against the league by Glee, much like they had when they were in the rugby union. Yeah, a bit of discontent. And it's, I mean, it's this discontent which came to a head five years later, which we've also done another episode, the 1917 season and the one little lie. Mm-hmm. So it all started brewing as far back as 1912. Wow. Just seeing what else we said. 1913, on September 6, 1913, Glebe actually won their first first grade title when they won the City Cup, beating North Sydney 10-8 in the final. That was the only first grade title that they would win. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen, have you ever got to see the, the City Cup, the actual I, have, I haven't. I'm not too sure uh, where it is. Yeah, because I've, I've never seen it. 
Um, I believe it was it had this on again, off again sort of existence mm-hmm. um, after the twenties. Mm-hmm. Let me just look that up. Um, and I think, yeah, it came back for, for a few seasons during the war. Mm-hmm. I think. And I believe it came back for one more year in 1959, and St. George won that then. So I would probably hazard a guess that it might be at the St. George Leagues Club, but I'm really not confident on that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's it's, it's a curious one. So it ran every year from 1912 to 1925, and then nothing for 12 years. Newtown won it in 1937, then nothing for five years. Newtown won it in 1942, and then St. George won it in 1959. Yeah, so it hasn't been played for very often. It's interesting because I I don't remember ever hearing about the City Cup at all. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what the trophy looks like. Yeah. Um, okay, so... In 1914, they made it to the City Cup final again. This time they lost. Uh, sorry, they didn't make it to the final. They lost in the semi-final to East, 26-9. to um, On January 28, 1915, Glebe beat Balmain 3-0 to win the Australia Day Carnival. And on that day, Frank Burge won the 100 yards race for Rugby League forwards. Wow. <laughs> there we go. Uh, the outbreak of war... Saw around 95 players and officials from the Glebe Club alone and list for service over the duration of the conflict, 66 of whom signed up in 1915 and 1916 alone. Despite this immense loss, the competitions continued and Glebe was in a hard-fought battle for first place with neighbours Balmain. Both clubs finished the season with 12 wins from 14 games. However, Balmain drew their other two games, whereas Glebe lost theirs, giving Balmain their maiden title and Glebe ran second. Uh... Glebe again reached the final in the City Cup, but they were outclassed by East 22-3 the following week in the final. They just uh, couldn't get the hump, eh? Yeah, they, they were kind of like St. Helens, I guess. <laughs> um, 1917, we've done a whole episode on what happened there. Um, I strongly advise you you check that one out. I won't go into it uh, here, but um, it... It's where the the animosity between the league and Glebe really come to a head. And the reason why I talk about this animosity is because it does come to a head. And we, we're getting we're getting to that pretty rapidly at the moment. Um, because it plays a big role in Glebe's demise and why they don't exist in the in the major league anymore. Mm. Um, in nineteen eighteen, Glebe won a reserve grade title. Um in 1919, they won the reserve grade title again. In 1920, Frank Burge scored a club and competition record eight tries in a game when Glebe beat University 41-0. That's that crazy. Record, that record has yet to be beaten. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, can you imagine someone scoring eight tries? It had just... Man, someone scores four tries now and they're all over the game. Yeah, yeah. Even getting five tries in a game happens very rarely these days. Yeah, it, and for it to be a forward as well. Yeah. Um. So in 1920, Glebe's long-serving official, um, Mr. Upton, resigned from his role due to health issue with his eyes. Um, he had been a long-respected official with the club, and his departure saw communication between Glebe and the New South Wales Rugby League suffer immensely. Um, 1920, Glebe also won their third straight reserve grade title. Um, on October 13, 1920, Annandale was axed from the competition, and this allowed Glebe to regain some of their old territory back, which they'd lost to Annandale when they first came in in 1910. And this was thought to help Glebe um, strengthen their future, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1922, they finished um, 
with equal first with North Sydney, and a final was played. Um, but on that day, North Sydney absolutely annihilated them, winning thirty-five to three to to win the title that year. And their last um, title, North Sydney's. That's right. So it just showed Glebe got very close once again. Mm-hmm. Um, they also lost twenty-one to three to East in the semi-final of the, of the City Cup. So they constantly got close, but never got all the way. Yeah, they were competitive. Yeah. Now, in 1923, uh, in round 14, uh, was an infamous game where North Sydney's test halfback, Duncan Thompson, was sent off for allegedly kicking Glebe forward Tom McGrath. Thompson was illegally held back after passing the ball and was trying to free himself when he accidentally struck McGrath in the face. Many supporters from both teams supported Thompson's response that it was an accident. However, the New South Wales Rugby League suspended him for the rest of the year. When they wouldn't overturn the decision, Thompson returned to Toowoomba, Toowoomba and vowed to never play in Sydney ever again. And that single event brought Norse two-year reign undone and they never won a title again. <laughs> um, Glebe finished... Um, it was a six on the ladder in 1923. However, they managed to reach the final of the City Cup against rivals Balmain, but again lost. Um, at full time in that in that City Cup final, the scores were tied at 5-all. An extra eight minutes of extra time was played. However, the score remained unchanged. So another 12 minutes of extra time was ordered. But the duration of the match seemingly took everything out of Glebe as Balmain ran in 20 points to win 25-5 to in the game's first ever 100-minute match. Well, wow, that's incredible. Do you know why they chose eight minutes for the first extra time? I have no idea. Yeah, it just seems like someone just, you know, pulled that out of thin air. <laughs> I'm assuming that they, they may have, and this is just a guess, they may have um, blew the whistle a bit early. Yeah. And the timekeeper said, well, luckily for you, Mr. Referee, um, they're still tied. So how's about we do 12 minutes of extra time after that and we'll get it all squared up? <laughs> I'm guessing that that makes it, I mean, it's equal second longest game that I can remember. There was that, uh, remember the tri-series game um, that played this yes. league. And then obviously the longest game in rugby league history is Ireland versus Spain in 2019, <laughs> which went for about 132 minutes conservatively. Yeah. That game just didn't want to end. No. (laughs) Um, So at this point, 1926 was Frank Burgess' last year playing for Glebe as he decided to take up a captain coaching role with St. George for 1927. Um, And it's from about this point on where Glebe stops being the dominant powerhouse side that they've always been. Mm -hmm. And they start failing to reach finals footy and you know, they start struggling a bit. Um, but it's the only time in their history where they've had um, consecutive seasons where they've failed to reach the finals and have been a long way from them. Mm-hmm. At the Glebe annual meeting on March 18, 1927, Alex Burden suggested that the club considered importing players to improve their results on the field, just like Norse did a few years earlier. However, his suggestion was met with great opposition and was, was denied. Um... Another bad bad decision by the club, I guess. Yeah, definitely, 100%. Um, that year saw Glebe win just four out of their 16 games, and they were only one win better than the last place university. Wow. Uh, Glebe's third grade side won their maiden title, giving the club seven titles all up over all three grades, but the first grade side being the only one not to win a premiership. In 1928, Glebe won four of their 12 games and finished six. They also lost their long-time home ground at Wentworth Park at season's end. Um, there was also quite an angry game. Um, uh, well, angry. The crowd, the crowd were quite angry in a game against the East at the agricultural ground at the end of that year, but it was nothing like the Earl Park riot. Um, on June 8, 1928, Lewis Abrams passed away. And some people at the time suggested that the heart and soul of Glebe died with him. Now we get up to the uh, the death of Glebe. Okay. 
1929, they won just three of 16 games and finished second last again. A special committee at, at the New South Wales Rugby League revealed its report regarding revised boundaries on November 4. When the league secretary, Horry Miller, unrolled a map of the boundary changes, all of Glebe's territory had been absorbed by a neighbouring club and rival, Balmain. The meeting grew very animated and an adjournment was made whereby the matter would be redressed in a week's time. On November 11, 1929, a ballot was held to determine if Glebe should be axed from the comp. The result was 13, favor, 13 votes to 12 in favour. The league stated that there were a number of reasons, but most prominent were Glebe's recent poor form, a lack of home ground, low crowds, and a growth of interest in soccer in the area. It's also suggested that Glebe's many battles with the league hierarchy helped sway the decision against Glebe's favour. So they found out that they were going to be on the chopping block when a map was rolled out. Yeah, and that's like, I mean, at the time when when they basically had the residency rule, like that, that's the death knell of the club and they knew it as soon as they saw that map. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing I would be interested to know from that time is why did, why, I mean, obviously there's a, the geographical reason that Balmain got, got their area, but for it to happen that way, like what was going on behind the scenes for that to happen? Cause Glebe was obviously the last club to find out. Yeah. Um, the, there's quite a few, um, I suppose factors that went on involved in why Glebe were, were ousted the way they were. Um, cause Balmain didn't actually end up getting all of Glebe's territory. It kind of got split up between, I mean, Balmain got a huge chunk of it, mm-hmm. but it also got split up between South and Newtown. Mm-hmm. And those three teams kind of voted in one block to eliminate Glebe from the competition because mm. they were going to be directly benefiting from it. It's almost like there was one moment in the history of the game where self-interest reigned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bowman were probably feeling a bit desperate. South Sydney at the time were the marquee club. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were winning a number of premierships in that period. Mm-hmm. I think they actually they've won six or seven in the space of eight years. Mm-hmm. They were so far ahead of everyone else, it wasn't funny. Balmain had come off this huge run from 1915 to 1924 where they were the kings of the game. No one got near them. Mm-hmm. But the few years after it, they were starting to struggle. And so they were probably a bit desperate. Um, Newtown were building. They were starting to get quite competitive again. So this was also an opportunity for them to go that next step and get even a little bit better, I guess. Mm-hmm. And... South, I guess they could see that those two teams were going to be a threat, so they were happy to to put their hand in the in the cookie jar, I guess, and get a little bit of something for themselves out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, local politician Tom Keegan, who had been a member of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly since 1910, lobbied the Glebe community in the week between the two meetings in a bid to get the Glebe team reinstated for the 1930 season. He managed to obtain 3,000 signatures which was presented to the New South Wales Rugby League, along with the provision that Glebe be retained. The petition and the request were ruled out of order by Harry Flegg. Non-voting delegates from nearly all the clubs sided with Glebe, including the benefactors of Glebe's demise, Balmain, and suggested if Glebe were to be given some of South Sydney's territory, then they would not, then they would stand a chance of not only survival, but prospering once again. So, and as I was just mentioning before, the reason why they're suggesting South Sydney's territory was to try and make South Sydney weaker. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Balmain were happy for South to get weaker mm-hmm. and have Glebe remain in the competition for that. Mm-hmm. But if that wasn't going to change, then Balmain didn't want Glebe in the comp. Wow, it's so <laughs> political, isn't it? <laughs> That's it's, crazy. It's political and also a little bit bitchy. It, it is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, though, the for the solution for them to stay in the competition be that they take somebody else's existing territory is, I feel like it's a bad argument to make. 
But the problem was the other argument of, well, let's just keep, let us keep our territory. They're taking away three teams' territory. I mean, they're, they're in between a rock and a hard place as it is. So I guess it's worth rolling the dice and, and getting that support from Balmain. Um, but it didn't matter at the end of the day. No, it's all right. Um, so, yeah, the league um, disagreed with the change in plan and change in boundaries and decided that acts were to Glebe were to be axed. Um, on November 18, a week later, a public meeting was held at the Glebe Town Hall, convened by the Mayor of Glebe, with the intention of forming a protest against the league's decision. But despite their efforts and good intentions, the decision would not be overturned. Um, Glebe's axing decimated the area, and teachers in rugby league died off very quickly. It was such a proud sporting area full of very loyal and passionate athletes that when it was announced that Glebe would no longer compete, almost their entire squad of players from the 1929 season retired from the game. Uh, Sig Christensen moved to Balmain and helped lead their resurrection in the late 30s. When he retired at the end of the 37th season, he was the last man that had played for Glebe that was left playing. And so it was on Armistice Day, Armistice Day 1929 that the league finally got their peace with the Glebe club. A team whose history is integral to the birth of the game and growth and had given way to plans for an expansion to the Belmore region of Sydney instead. It would take six years before a team from that area was introduced into the competition. Um, There'd been this talk of having a team out in the Belmore region simmering around in the very late 20s. And so it was suggested that we need to get rid of one team to bring in this Belmore side. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Because um, the, the game was... It's always had this weird thing about having odd-numbered teams. <laughs> it really has. So, yeah. Um, so between 1929 and 1983... Mm-hmm. The game only lost one club. Yeah. After Glebe, that is. And that was University in 1937. Mm-hmm. So it just went on this, from that period onwards, it just grew and grew and grew. So it went to Canterbury in 35, Manly and Parramatta in 47, Cronulla and Penrith in 69, um, Canberra and Illawarra in 82. Mm-hmm. And then 1983, we had um, Newtown, West. Cronulla and South were all on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. And Western Newtown got, at, at the time, they got cut. Mm-hmm. And West rallied and got themselves reinstated. Mm-hmm. But Newtown couldn't. And that came down to a, uh, well, I wouldn't say a quarrel. It came down to Campbelltown Stadium. Yep. So um, Newtown were told that if they would, they would have one year, they'd get one year off to get their finances in order and to relocate the, themselves from Henson Park in Newtown out to Campbelltown Stadium. And West came out and said, how's about we play Campbelltown instead? And the game went, okay, that makes sense. You're out that way already. And Newtown were like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there was a bit more involved, but that, that was pretty much the, uh, the, the, yeah. the crux of how it all went down. That summed it up very quickly. Now, if you want to get more information about this whole Glebe story, because there's a lot more to it, um, there's a book by uh, Max Solling, and it's called An Act of Bastardry. Mm-hmm. Uh, find it, read it, it's fascinating. Um, you'll even read about how um, there was a local nun who used to like playing rugby league against the boys in the schoolyard. Oh, wow. That's uh, an interesting story. Just shows you how much that region was just knitted into rugby league. It's the only game they cared about. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's there's almost an arc there of like the game, uh, Glee being so vital to the start of the game, uh, and as much about the infrastructure that it brought, as well as them being a good team. I know they didn't win a title, but they were there and thereabouts. And I think that's important for a young competition to have. But it's almost as though the game grew beyond that point of needing them. And when that happened, it was pretty quick to just swallow them up. And and that was it for Glebe. Um, yeah, they sort of had this... As, as the Glebe grew strong, as the game grew stronger, mm. Glebe grew weaker. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, so it got, yeah, as you said, it got to the point where the game went, we don't need them anymore. Yeah, it's a strange one. It's it's a little bit sad, um, but it probably shows what rugby league maybe should be doing now in Sydney to a certain extent. But, I mean, it's not going to... It's it's never easy when those decisions are made. And, look, there's certain teams that uh, it's almost like their ghost hangs around a little bit in rugby league, Newtown being the number one amongst them, who they just... I mean, they're in pretty rude health at the level that they're at. But uh, it's interesting what happened to Glebe and that, yeah, the game sort of just grew beyond them, which is... It's it's weird when you think of it like that. Yeah. Um, there is a, a happy ending to the story, and that is a few years ago, Glebe resurrected themselves, and they're playing in the was it third division competition type thing in, in Sydney. Ron Massey Cup. That's the one. And they're I think they're a feeder team now for Newtown. Oh, really? That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, Ron so, Massey. I've called some of them games. Yeah. And they actually do play at a Wetworth Park occasionally. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So if you want to trip down memory lane, you go to Wetworth Park when, when Glebe are playing there and you can watch them playing. They're wearing the, the Dirty Reds jumper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can watch them play at Wentworth Park just like people used to do in the 1900s through to the 1920s. That's amazing. It's weird because Glebe, as somebody that has had an, a, uh, an interest in rugby league history, there are certain clubs, and it's normally the ones that have disappeared, but Glebe is the one that has always stood out for me. Whenever I've had to go to Glebe in Sydney, um, it's, I don't know, there's something special about it because you know they were a part of rugby league history at one point. Um, it would be really cool to have them, I mean, obviously the Ron Massey Cup's important, but to have them really be an integral part of the lower-grade system whether it be playing New South Wales Cup or whatever, um, because they're an important part of rugby league history, and I think that it's important that we we keep history when we've got it. Absolutely, um, and the let's say the the town hall where that first meeting was held to form the Glebe side mm-hmm. still stands. Mm. So go and check it out. Here's the address: one hundred and sixty St John's Road, Glebe. There you go. Um, it's a grand, grand building. Uh, yeah. Go check it out. All around. There you go. I've given you all some homework as well. You've got to yeah. go get a book and you've got to go and drive out to Glebe. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the the 1909 podcast that we did that was mentioned in the 1917 podcast, the One Little Lie podcast, we'll put the links for those in the uh, description of this podcast that you're listening to. So you can have a listen to them and, and get other parts of the story that were going on at around the time that Glebe were involved in, in, in different capacities. Absolutely. Um, and there's, there's going to be other things we're going to, you know, I'm going to do some more player profiles and stuff like that. And you'll get to hear some more stories about how the game was formed. Um, so yeah, there's some pretty fascinating stuff still to come. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I love, I love learning about the history of the game, and and this is one of the areas I didn't know a great deal about. So this has been fantastic to learn about Glebe. Yeah, as uh, I've been wanting to do this one for a while, and, and I, I kind of wanted to just focus on the birth and the death of the club because both were pretty important and dramatic. Yeah. Um. So yeah, if you want. If you want all the details of all the games they've played, you can go to Rugby League Project. I've got them all there with all the team lineups, all the players, all the all the results for the for the Glebe's entire history, including the City Cup. So you can check all that out there. Yeah, and um, I, I actually messaged someone. And they're going to try and uh, find the City Cup for us. Nice. I would love to see a picture of it. I'd like to yeah. know where it's located. Yeah, as I said to them, it's probably been used as an ashtray somewhere. <laughs> Be sitting in a corner of something and propping up some pieces of paper that aren't important. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. We we might actually put the link from Rugby League Pro- Project 
uh, about the Glee Club in the, the episode notes as well. So we'll, we'll add that in too for people to have a look at. Sounds good. Alrighty. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And uh, we will catch you next time, um, maybe for another history episode. Who knows? <laughs>